Welcome to the Victorious Souls Podcast with self-love coach, Danielle Burnock. Things happen in our lives that make us feel powerless. But Danielle believes that anyone can become a victorious soul by reclaiming what belongs to them, their value, their belovedness, and their God-given superpower. The Victorious Souls Podcast is dedicated to empowering you to rise up, reclaim, and embrace the change from survive to thrive as a victorious soul through the power of love. And now, here's that lady on the internet who loves you, Danielle. Welcome to the Victorious Souls Podcast with me, your host, Danielle Burnock, that lady on the internet who loves you. From DanielleBurnock.com, love yourself from Survive to Thrive, connecting you to the love that heals. Today, I have with me Katrina Robertson. She is a financial advisor who served on a jury where things got messy. She also is a wife and a mom of five grown kids, an advocate for those without a voice, and the author of the book, Juror number 11. Thank you for being with me today, Katrina. Yes, and thank you for inviting me. I'm looking forward to the opportunity just to uh, kind of spend some time with your guests and your or with your listeners, really. Mm -hmm. So tell us a little bit about yourself. Who is Katrina? Well, you know, everybody always usually leads uh, the answer to that question with their profession. Um I, which is kind of a shallow definition of somebody, I believe, but I am a financial advisor. Um, I've been doing this. In fact, I'm getting messages right now on my little group teams as I'm talking here. Today is my 16th anniversary here with the company I work with. Um, well, happy but, anniversary. <laughs> <laughs> but beyond that, um, i am uh, been married to my husband for almost 27 years. We've got five children. Uh, two biological, three are adopted. Um, one we actually adopted as an adult, um, two uh, adopted uh, from the foster care mm -hmm. system. And I've always kind of been very in, enmeshed and involved in the court systems for uh, children and individuals that just really don't have a voice. Um, lots of volunteer roles. One major one was a a CASA court appointed special advocate um, that I served as for, for many years. So that's kind of me in a nutshell. Oh, wow. That's kind of a lot. So that prepared you for being on a jury. You were already like involved in the, the court well, system in um, some kind of way. Well, uh, <laughs> yes, well, and no. Prepared me <laughs> in a sense that I was, you know, I was comfortable going in and out of courtrooms and mm -hmm. uh, I, uh, you don't normally sit on the stand as a jury member, but that's certainly where I wound up. But I, I sat on the stand many times in courtrooms, so that wasn't anything. But one thing that actually complicated it a little bit for me is I uh, knew all the judges very well. Um, so that was actually one of the complications in my whole story. So Wow. <laughs> Well, you were on this jury. Had you been on one before, or is this the only jury you'd been on? Have you been well, called before? You know, so, you know, and I don't know if all of your listeners are kind of aware of how the jury selection process works, but uh, if you have a 
driver's license, you're basically in the pool for being uh, possibly called or, or asked to serve as a jury member. Um, so you get this lovely little slip in the paper that says you're, you've been called to jury duty. And they bring in like hundreds of people all at once. And you're given, um, you know, all of the instructions and you're assigned to these different panels. Some states may do it slightly different, but it's um, same similar concept, I'm, I'm fairly certain. And so you're, this entire uh, group of, you know, hundreds of people are assigned to usually anywhere between four to six months where they are, uh, have the possibility of being uh, summoned for uh, a voir dire process. And I'll explain what that is in a little bit more detail. But so during that four to six month time period, at any particular time, you can receive a phone call or text or email or however they do it to say, we need you to show up at the courthouse um, if you're one of these particular panels. So those panels show up, uh, you know, then there might be from those hundreds of people, maybe 50 that show up. And then they go through this voir dire process where they then begin this lengthy questioning period to try to, from that group, get it down to the uh, best group of individuals to uh, be able to serve as the judges on the case that are non-biased and so forth. So all that being said, I had been on uh, jury duty before as far as I'd been called down, I had never gotten to the point where I was actually one of the chosen jurors to serve on a trial. So wow. this was That's my so first. What state are you in? The... Arkansas. 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 Yeah, they yes. do that different in Michigan. We don't have like a period of time. I've been summoned for jury duty a few times and I had to go down a particular day and spent the whole day there and either I got chosen or I didn't. Okay. So okay. Yeah. That See, was so, much simpler. Yours is much more. Yeah. Involved. So yeah, you actually kind of have that possibility for that four to six month period where you could be called in. So actually, in this particular, um, uh, you know, I think it was a five month period. Um, I was called three times, you know, to come down to the courthouse um, for, but I was only selected, you know, to serve one of those three times. Yeah. Well, tell us about this experience. You served on this jury. What kind of a trial was it? And share with us your experience because it got messy. It did. It <laughs> did. Um, it, um, so it was a murder in the first degree, whereas was the charges. And it was a 60 uh, year old woman, piano teacher, never been in trouble before had shot and killed her husband. Wow. Um, her uh, defense was self-defense. We were told, you know, up front that it would most likely be a four to five day trial. So that was one of the questions that was asked during war dire is, was the fact that it's going to be four to five days Would that um, cause any of you to not be able to complete the entire trial? You know, you already have, lights out somewhere, you know, or whatever. Um, so, you know, I mean, there's always the, you know, jury duty, I think to the average person is kind of like, nobody wants to serve on jury, jury duty. It's, you know, it's kind of like, um, 
kind of a burden kind of thing. And, you know, I'm an extremely busy individual and professional and mom. And I had some very stressful things going on in that particular point in my life that I go into in my book. So, you know, did I want to serve, you know, initially, I mean, no, I mean, I, when they said four or five days, I'm like, oh my gosh, you know, I can't, you know, just spur the moment, like just disappear for four or five days and uh, neglect my family and work. But, you know, I kind of, and I, and I go through my, my thought process in the book, I was like, you know what, you know, this is a, a civil responsibility and it it's very, very important. And uh, juries play a critical role in our justice system. And it really, you know, I was like, you know, it's kind of a, an honor to be selected and a huge responsibility. You know, you are having to make a decision that's really going to um, completely change the tra- yeah. Yeah, trajectory of someone's life. And so I was like, you know what, um, you know, I can, I can do this. You know what I mean? I'm a very. So in uh, Arkansas, do they let you say you just don't want to? Um, obviously if you, you say that you don't want to, that's probably going to cause, uh, the, you know, the different during the voir dire process, it's the different counsels for the defense and the prosecution that are asking all the questions and stuff. And if you are just real vocal that I don't want to do this, I don't want to do this. I don't want to do this. Well, that's, you're probably going to get way down at the bottom of somebody that they would choose to select because who want somebody on the jury that simply doesn't want to be there. But no, it, you in can't Michigan, use... you can't say, I don't want to. You have right. to prove yeah. that you can't. Exactly. And you have to have exactly. very specific, extenuating circumstances. Otherwise, they don't care if you want to or no. Correct. You Correct. Just yeah, to. even, I mean, there were <laughs> there were individuals who would say, um, you know, I, I've got to be able to pick my kids up at this time and this and that. And none of those were you know, they took note of that. And I know what they were doing is like, you know, if we can avoid choosing this person, then we will. But, um, but no, you can't simply say, I don't want to. Gotcha. But you can, <laughs> but um, doesn't it, that doesn't get you off the hook. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That doesn't get you off here in Michigan. It's like too right. bad. And then you would, I don't know what it is now. When I was called before uh, my husband served on a jury once I mean, something like eleven dollars a day or something. something oh yeah, that, yeah it's, it's like really. <laughs> yeah, it's uh, it, it's, I, you know, inflation. I think it's brought. Well, I actually know exactly what you get paid because um, uh, uh do I give a, a little uh, um, a little bit of a uh, teaser here or uh, in that one of my uh repercussions is I was required to pay back all of the jury fees. Um, so yeah, I knew that calculation of exactly what it cost <laughs> to pay a jury because, you know, but it, cause it wasn't just the jury members that, uh, served on the trial. And again, yeah, and if you get chosen to serve, it's a higher pay than if you just show up and aren't selected. But, you know, again, there was like 50 individuals that showed up. So, so yeah, I got to put the bill for all that. Oh, wow. So you ended up in contempt of court. What happened with that? Right. So, and we hear that on the on the TV and the movies. Oh, you're going to be in contempt of court, and they bang on the thing. So, what all does that mean? How does that affect people? Right. So, contempt of court means you um, did not follow the court. 
the way a lot of times the word court it's substitution for judge the judge is the court contempt so you're in contempt of the judge you um did not follow a judge's direct uh orders um so that is uh that's what contempt of court is so you know everybody know you know just like we mentioned at the beginning you know during a uh during a trial if you're on the jury you're not allowed to talk about it even amongst you know, the jury members, like when you're in the jury room and stuff, you can't talk about it. You can't talk about the case, anything about the case. They they drill into you. Don't talk about the case out, you know, when because we weren't completely sequestered until mm-hmm. it got to deliberation. We went home at night. Um, don't talk about the case. And they say, don't research the case. Well, you know, that and that I didn't have any problem with with that. I mean, after four days of sitting in a courtroom listening to uh testimony after testimony and evidence after evidence and argument after argument. I knew more about this case than I know I could have dug up anywhere. So that wasn't an issue. Um, But let me kind of back up. If you're familiar with how trials work, um, how, how that, how they work is prosecution gets the first go at like opening statements. So you have prosecution and then, um, after that, defense gets a turn at opening statements. Well, then prosecution gets another go at uh, opening statements. And then prosecution then gets an opportunity for all their witnesses to come. Um, in this particular uh, case, uh, there were four prosecutors, four state attorneys, and only one defense attorney. So I immediately right there at the beginning was like, gosh, this seems like not equally uh fair, you know, like Mm -hmm. why does the state get four separate attorneys um, to take on different aspects of the case and all that and defense only gets one. And then why does the, and then, so the prosecution, they had 17 witnesses. So 17 witnesses are basically arguing or saying the same thing over and over and over. She, she shot, killed her husband. That was never up for debate to begin with. Um, The, <laughs> we're not arguing whether or not she shot and killed her husband. We're right. arguing whether or not it was self-defense, right? Correct, correct. And none of these, all of these witnesses were just experts in, oh, good grief, like gunshot <laughs> wounds. And I, I don't know, but um, it was it was pretty arduous having to sit. It was it took about two days for the prosecution to get all their witnesses in. And there was lots of emotional uh, manipulation going on. You know, things like they would they keep a a blown up picture of the victim's autopsy body while they made arguments. And it's like, you know, is that necessary? You know what I mean? Like uh, we're, they're just trying to play on your emotions. So, so then after two days of prosecution uh, witnesses, the defense gets their turn. They had 14 witnesses. Um, The state objected to all but two of them and it was all sustained. So almost none of the defense witnesses were allowed to speak. Why were they disallowed? Were you in agreement with that or no? Well, and so here's where my problem as a jury member comes in. We are tasked with the responsibility of being a judge in a case. We are not allowed to ask questions. We are not allowed to discuss. Um, we aren't allowed to know what those witnesses were going to testify for, nor what the objection was to their testimony. It, I realized that this whole um, jury system is very much a 
Um, these people are too ignorant to understand law. So we are going to spoon feed it to them as babies. And um, they are to only listen to what's told them. They are not to ask questions. They are not to think for themselves or think critically. We'd prefer they go with group think um, and just do as we say. And unfortunately, that's not my personality. <laughs> I'm a very analytical, critical thinker, you know, and so then it got time for closing arguments. And again, it's the same thing. Prosecution goes, defense gets a chance, and then prosecution gets to wrap it all up. So it just seemed very... That seems um, opposite of the... Well, and so, of our judicial system, like they say, innocent till proven guilty. Correct. So, so where that, it, it seems like it was guilty till proven innocent in the case. Well, that was, and so, and I absolutely, I'm, I'm one who walked in with an innocent until proven guilty. The argument um, for doing it that way is that because they are innocent until proven guilty, the prosecution gets double time to prove mm -hmm. they're guilty. Does that make sense? Oh, to me, it doesn't. I guess. But that's the... I understand the, English and I understand the logic. I don't know that I deem it fair. <laughs> correct. Correct. And so I, and I'm somebody who I really, um, I like to know people's stories, you know, who they are, what kind of person they are. And... I, during this four-day trial, I really knew very little even about the defendant, other than she shot and killed her husband. Um, <laughs> 16 and, times, according to them, or told uh, yes, 16 or 17 oh times or whatever. Good gracious. Um, but, um, and I knew absolutely nothing about the victim other than he was shot by his wife. There were allegations that he was an alcoholic. There were allegations that he was abusive, but any testimony to that was not allowed. Um, and I had significant problems with that. Yeah, I do. Um, even though I'm not on the jury, I'm like, yeah, I mean, if that's and, like, and it really, like, what was I, her I cause of defense? What, what did she even say? Why was she defending? Well, would, so the... The and again, we're I haven't even gotten to what, what my contempt of court was, but I, I'm trying to. That's one of the things why I wrote the book is I wanted people to kind of walk for a minute in my shoes on where I was. Mm. Um, but so the the argument behind disallowing any of that, and I'm you know, and I'm trying to show both both sides here for not allowing any of that testimony, and it, and it's like character testimony, you know, because, okay, so the guy was an, an abusive, angry alcoholic. Was he uh, being abusive and was her life in danger in that moment on that day? Um, you know, and it's kind of like, that's what they were trying to prove is the situation circumstances on that particular day, was her life really in danger? My argument is, okay, so maybe it wasn't specifically on that day, but if he had a prior history, mm -hmm. um, I could absolutely see to where she believed in her mind that her life was in danger due to prior history. Oh, definitely. With uh, domestic abuse, that's, that's correct. I, I interviewed so, many people who've been through that and have escaped in other ways and 
the right. so, elaborate plans sometimes they have to go through to to escape. Right. And and it was able, so there one of the witnesses that were able to um testify for her as an expert witness was a, a counselor who specialized in PTSD. They were able to argue that, you know, she suffered from PTSD, PTSD, but they were unable to uh, comment on that that PTSD originated from abuse by her husband. So it just, anyway. So it just came out of nowhere, huh? <laughs> she had a hard life. That's all we can say. She had a hard life. Um, so, um, anyway, it just, I'm kind of like, gosh, why is everybody okay with this? But anyway, so the, after all, everything had been done except for closing arguments, um, we had gone home that day. And, you know, like I said, we knew nothing about this victim and I, um, you know, again, I'm, I'm thinking through everything and I'm like, you know, they said we can't research the case. What if I just tried to find out something about this victim? So I quickly um, just typed his name into a particular search engine, spent a total of not even five minutes, nothing. You know, I was deliberate and not like going full on mm -hmm. research mode. I was deliberate and not doing that. Nothing came up, you know, and I was like, no, Katrina, uh, I'm going to have to trust that the system is the way it is for a reason. And I've got to go in there and deliberate based solely on what is presented in the courtroom. And that's exactly what we did. But we went into deliberations um, and we ended up uh, determining not guilty on first degree murder and ended up going with the lesser charge of second degree murder. Um, but after we were done with our deliberations, and it was a very grueling process, and I, I really, um, I'm very vulnerable and transparent in the book of how difficult of a process it was for me to, you know, again, based solely on evidence and testimony that was given in that courtroom, to even though my my heart and my gut wanted to go one direction, the evidence showed something else. And to get to a place where I had to utter the word guilty on another human being, um, it really kind of wrecked me. You know, it was really, and I, I, I was very vulnerable in the, in the jury room and I was, I'm very vulnerable and transparent in the book. But so then I, when we were done with all that, I made the offhanded comment to nobody in particular. I, I said, you know, and uh, I don't know if it bothered everybody else as much as it bothered me that the majority of the uh, defendants witnesses weren't able to speak. But, you know, I said, I'm just really curious about the victim. And I attempted to find out more information about him. I said, I wasn't able to find anything, but I said, it just bothers me that we don't know more about him. You know, that was that we went out into the, the courtroom. We issued our verdict and sentencing um, you know, is a hundred percent unanimous. Um, we, uh, I breathe a sigh of relief, leave the courtroom, go home, say, you know, thank goodness that's over. Well, three days later, another jury member went back to the courthouse and filed a juror misconduct complaint about me. Mm -hmm. Um, and the defense attorney 
the attorney for the defendant grabbed hold of that complaint. And he's the one that pushed for contempt of court charges against me and asked for a mistrial. So was the verdict come, did the verdict come with guilty or not guilty? For my contempt? No, for the woman. Well, well, so that's the thing that was so kind of additionally bizarre about the whole thing was, you know, like I said, we came back with a not guilty verdict on the charge of first degree murder. Oh, so guilty on second degree. Guilty on second. But by, and it was the defense attorney that was pushing this contempt of court and mistrial. But by him doing that and a mistrial being granted, he basically opened his client up to the ability to get first degree murder all over again. Wow. And so it was kind of like, what in the world is going on? Like, what is happening? Um, So I, and I'll kind of put this out as a little bit of a teaser in that a mistrial never actually happened. So you'll have to read the book to find out what happened. (laughs) Wow. So what happened to you with the contempt of court? You know, what did they Um, require of you? Did you have to go stand in front of the judge or or what happened? Did they lock you up? What'd they do? (laughs) Oh my gosh. Yeah. So I, I mean, I include the court transcripts and everything from all that, but when, so when the defense attorney, um, want, you know, said is what was asking for contempt of court and mistrial, uh, you know, and this is how I found out about it. We got an email and a letter, um, saying there's been jury misconduct. We all have to come back to court. So all the witnesses, all the jury members, all the, uh, parties to the case had to come back to court. And they sequestered all of us jury members into a room and they had us come out one by one uh, and, you know, to be uh, to be questioned and cross examined um, and basically asking, was there any jury juror misconduct? Only um, and I realized it was about me when I was the last one sitting alone in the the room, you know, they called out one by one, everybody. And then I'm, I'm left sitting. I was like, uh, they're saving me for last. Cause this has to do with me. Um, and out of all of, you know, the testimony from all the jurors, there were only two that even recalled me even making a statement. And so, I mean, it was obvious I wasn't trying to like prejudice or, uh, persuade or make art, you know, I mean, it was, um, but yeah, even with that, the, and then, you know, it, I, I mentioned at the beginning, uh, I knew the judge very well. Um, and so he ended up recusing himself. So it was a different judge that stepped in to handle that hearing. So, and this particular judge was very well known in our area for um, just being, um, I'll keep it very professional here and just say she's harsh, very, very harsh. Um uh, you'll, you can read the court transcripts and draw your own conclusion. But so she did in that hearing, um, and, and, you know, and it, it leaves lots of um, unanswered questions as far as how everything played out on it's like, you can really tell there's a lot of uh, power plays going on and there's a lot of political games being played. Um, and it just really left um a, a really sour taste in my mouth because it's like, you know, I, I went into this whole experience thinking it was all about uh, truth and uh, justice. <laughs> and I'm like, no, it's about power plays and manipulation and 
using jury members as pawns and wow it was wow. so okay, how did it so, make you feel through all of that that must have just oh it was also awesome. so, so yeah so the defense attorney ended up I mean he when he had me on the stand and he just I mean he slandered me he told lies he made accusations that was you know and I'm from a small town and I'm a professional um with a you know small business I you know and to have somebody slander you like that and it be put on the front page of the local newspaper. I mean, it, it was absolutely devastating. You know, I'm somebody who my, my character is literally one of my most valuable assets I have. And to somebody to attempt to completely discredit my character um, is, yeah, it, it was, I mean, I, I took myself off all social media. I, it was, it was a very excruciating time because like I said, I, I'm a financial advisor and, you know, he accused me of like, um, I, he'll just have to read the book at all the, the allegations he, he made <laughs> against me. He was, comes across as a very, um, uh, slimy attorney, reptilian, <laughs> but um, I don't have to say any of that again. I just, you can just read the transcripts yourself and, and draw your own conclusions. But, so you have the transcripts are in the book. Correct. Correct. Okay. So yes. how did you overcome and get the victory over all these awful um, emotions and attacks against your character and just feeling just probably emotionally emasculated as might be. Oh way of yeah. It. And it's, you know, um, Emotions are, especially for women, I think women, I think just feel a lot deeper, not, not saying men don't have feelings, but I think women as general, we, especially if you're kind of one of those empath type mm -hmm. personalities where you even absorb everybody else's emotions. Um, you know, I sat through that trial absorbing the weight of, you know, I mean, some of the victims family was there, um, you know, no doubt the trauma they'd gone through of mm -hmm. uh, losing their family member, regardless of what kind of person he was, it, you know, that's irrelevant. Right. Um, and, and then, you know, this uh, defendant and what she was, had gone through and went through and, but anyway, all that to say emotions are, can be very raw and, um, I lost tons of weight, really got to an unhealthy place. Um, but what I had to do was continue to stand on, on the truth. A lot of times our emotions are contradictory to the truth. Um, and you begin to um, allow yourself to think your feelings are reality, that you really are a, a bad person or you know, I was also dealing with some significant issues with my children that I go into detail in the book, you know, of, you know, I, I really am a, a bad mother or I'm not trustworthy or I'm not a hard worker or I'm, you know, you start because that's what your feelings are telling yeah, the self-attacking. Yeah. And, and it's making that decision to, um, go back to the truth of no, that is not the truth. And, and really to just keep putting one foot in front of the other. I think sometimes we allow ourselves to get stuck mm -hmm. in those feelings. Now, I, I think in order to heal, you have to walk through those feelings. Like you kind of have to feel it all. I, I say kind of sit in your ash pile. Um, you know, for me, my um, my faith is kind of my cornerstone. And But to be able to 
allow myself to be angry with God, um, to ask questions of God of like, why, um, you know, during all this, this time, um, I, you know, and I know your listeners can't see it, but I got a, a tattoo on my, my forearm of a, a verse Exodus 14, 14 with the words, be still on it. And that, that verse, the rest of it is, um, you know, the Lord will fight for you. You must only be still. And I remember, you know, sitting and it was a fresh tattoo as I sat in there and the judge, uh, declared me in contempt of court. And I, you know, the, the tattoo was still raised as it was new. And I kind of rubbing my hands over that and, and, and sobbing and saying, you know, God, I thought you were going to fight for me. Um, you know, and I, you know, so I guess allowing yourself to feel that, but then getting back up and saying, you know what, even if, even if all this doesn't turn out the way I I'd think like it, it to, <laughs> but it should. And, yeah. and really, um, you know, it's like, because we and, think we know, we think we know what's best, but we don't always just like with our sure. kids as a parent, you know, yeah. we think they think they know their best. They're, they're seven years old. They know what's best. They're 15. Oh, no, they no, know they're what's 18 best. and 19. And thank for well, sure. I mean, they they come to best. different things over and over again at different times, you know, they go through cycles of, you know, they know everything, but they don't. Yeah. And so we yeah. can feel like that well, with God too. We know everything. No, you don't. Yeah. Well, and, and I think sometimes, you know, we talk about like God's will and stuff and I, 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 I think things happen in our lives that are not part of God's perfect will. I mean, I Amen. don't think like, you know, death and divorce and disease and sin are not part of his perfect will. Amen. But, I just want to pause here for my listeners yeah, to just yeah. savor that. I agree. There yeah. are things that happen in the earth all over the place that are not God's will. Just because it happened doesn't mean mm-hmm. it was God's will. Why else would Jesus have part of the Lord's prayer, let your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Cause it's not happening here. Yeah. Yeah. Like, you know, and so sometimes I think we kind of get stuck in this, you know, well, it must be God's will. No, no. no. Children dying of cancer is not God's will. Amen. This woman, this woman shooting her husband was not God's will. You know, Amen. if he was an angry, alcoholic, abusive husband, that's not his will now. Um, but, um, True faith comes in that says, you know, even though all this is happening, I still choose to stand on the the truth that God is ultimately in control and does love me. Um, so that's where that, you know, you you hear people say that that phrase, you know, God never gives you more than you can handle. Uh-uh. And they say it like they're quoting some sort of scripture straight out of the Bible. And I'm like, <laughs> can you point that out? Because I really think like Job would take offense to that. Mm-hmm. I, I think Paul. Well, would everything take offense that to happens that. to people isn't something God gave them anyways. Right. Trauma right. By virtue of what it is, is something that we can't mm-hmm. handle. <laughs> right. And I, you know, and I, I even, I even look at, you know, the story of, of Job and those things that happened in his life were things that God absolutely allowed to happen. But Job, if you read it, he does not take it as a, uh, um, with joy. <laughs> He's no, very and God angry. didn't dish it out either. Yeah, the, yeah, the, the he, uh, that people say, God won't give you. Well, God didn't give that. that yeah, was not yeah, absolutely. From God. <laughs> he allowed it. He allowed it. But, um, you know, but Job says, you know, you know, God has abandoned me. He's left me. You know, God doesn't listen to me. He doesn't hear me, you know? And so, you know, and, and God was okay with, with Job 
being angry about it. And so I think sometimes, you know, uh, like I said, I'm a very vulnerable, transparent person. And I've had people all throughout the years, you know, I've always been that way on my social media, like with my stories of the hard with my adopted kids and working with other kids that have been through significant trauma. And I've had people over there saying, you need to write a book, you need to write a book. And I think it's because I've never been afraid to voice those hard emotions and people are attracted to that. Mm -hmm. Um, Because they, a lot of people, if they're a Christian, they feel like, well, if I'm a good Christian, I should always, you know, be joyful and thankful and appreciative. And I'm like, eh, read the Psalms. (laughs) (laughs) The Psalms, exactly. You know, lamentations to lament, to kind of like grieve. And we don't allow ourselves to do that. The, the trick though, I guess, or the, the, um, you know, what I would, would say is key is you can't, can't, um, stay there. You can't get stuck there. And, and again, you know, um, tattoos obviously became my therapy during this time. And some people have, have convictions or strong opinions about that. And I'm like, you know, uh, that's fine. You can do you, but at the, the day after when it was all said and done, when I finally had my final personal hearing, um, for the contempt, I went and got a tattoo. Um, and again, your le- listeners can't see it. Um, but if they look me up, you'll see it, but it's of a, a Phoenix, um, because the Phoenix is the symbol of kind of rising from the ashes. Amen. Um, and, and then you'll notice on the cover of my book, I'm wearing a purple dress, which is actually, well, I'm, I, I obviously, uh, wear purple a lot. And that is the dress I wore to my hearing. And my, my Phoenix here has a lot of purple. And if you read, the story, you find out there's, there's a reason for that. There's significance in it. Um, you know, when I was in just kind of, kind of in these depths of just, um, you know, sackcloth and ashes, if you want to go there and a friend, um, I was like, you know, I don't even, what do you wear to a hearing, you know? And, and she sent me a picture of that purple dress and she said, Katrina, where purple is the symbol of royalty and you're a child of the king. So put it on and claim it. Um, and so that just became, you know, my, my thing. Um, so I just, you know, and so that's my kind of advice. I, I just leave people with is my, my story's unique. <laughs> There's not too many people have sat on jury duty and it turned into this big, huge quagmire of a mess and wind up facing that. I mean, I, I looked at the possibility of jail time. Um, in fact, my attorney <laughs> told me up to a year, which you want to talk about the air being sucked out of the room. Yeah. But so not everybody's been to be, been through that particular thing, but we all, all have significant trials we go through, huge mm-hmm. storms in our lives. Everybody has, has um, a story of something where they felt like, you know, the earth opened up and swallowed them, yeah. or, or maybe you wanted the earth to open up and swallow you. I don't know. But, um, and so it's just, um, uh, don't forget to rise, <laughs> curl up and cry if you need to, but stand back up. Um, so, and that's why kind of the subtitle of the book is, uh, a memoir of the broken justice system and, um, rising from the trials of life. Rising from the trials of life. Yeah, because you go into more than the the jury situation in your book. You share about your kids because you've been through a lot of things with yes. them also. Yeah, some some pretty pretty tough 
tough stuff um, with, with my kids and, um, you know, and, and kind of the, you know, I went into the foster care and adopt journey with a very um, kind of sunshine and rainbows perception of, you know, you just give these children, um, you know, love and boundaries and guidance and a family and a support system. And love is going to, um, you know, cover all their trauma and make them successful uh, individuals. And it was the, uh, it was having to face the harsh reality that unfortunately love does not fix all wounds. Um, you know, because just like us as, um, children of God, um, we have a choice to make in this exchange as well. We have to choose to accept his love and grace and forgiveness. Um, we have to make some of those choices, you know, God, you know, I, I did everything I could for these children, you see. Um, but there comes a point where now it's their turn. To take everything that they've been given, yeah. Um, and you know, it really gave me a lot more insight into to God's love. Um, you know, I mean, like, how dare us say that that God doesn't love us and hasn't done enough for us? In the same way of when I I look at um, what all I, I gave for my children and um. Now, none of them have, have ever said, you know, that I, I, they've never accused me of that. Um, but I, I felt like they, they have just because they've not taken hold of anything and, and used it to help overcome their trauma. You, you, the, and does that make sense? You know what I mean? It's so, it so I, I definitely go into that in the book that. Well, it's um, like they have to take ownership. It's right. not so much that love failed because God is love, but you know, he, Jesus died to bear our sins, but if we don't take it, you know, if we reject that, so we have to take ownership of it as well. It's like, love is not magical. (laughs) It's like, well, but we want to believe it is sometimes, but it is powerful. It can do, it can do the healing that you have believed that, but it takes, takes two. Correct. It It does. And you know, and that's kind of, um, again, kind of one of my things that, you know, I like to leave people with is, um, you know, you can, you can pour everything you have into somebody, you know, love somebody with everything that you have, and they can choose to walk away from it. Don't stop loving people, you know, and, and that's the, you know, there's, it's kind of like a Martina, Martina McBride song, um, you know, you can pour everything into, uh, you know, your heart and soul into, you know, whether it's like a, a business or a project and it all fall apart, you know, keep building and creating anyway. Mm-hmm. Um, you can be Sounds married. Sounds a little to bit some... like that uh, Mother Teresa quote she has when I don't remember the whole thing, but it's like people will be ugly, love them anyways. People right, will do right. this, think... love them anyways. People will right. do this, love them anyway. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Maya Angelou has, has one as well that's similar that, um, you know, and, and love looks different in, you know, like right now with one of my, my children and, you know, the, the love is creating some, some boundaries 
mm-hmm. um, you know, that that boundaries absolutely, um, you know, in, a, in an attempt to try to um, get them also on the right taking path. ownership. Yeah. To, to right. take, for them so, to take ownership, you have to say, this is your yard over here. <laughs> This is exactly. your yard. See the fences? And they're yeah. like, no, but I like that yard over there. No, yeah. this is your yard. <laughs> and you try to say, well, that yard over there, you know, you're going to get electrocuted if you go in there. I don't believe you. And well, you know, well, you're going to have to learn the hard oh, way. That's such a good know, example but... right there. It's like, and that's where faith and taking ownership has to come in. And we have to, it's a personal yeah. thing. We have to do it for ourselves. We can't choose for other people. Yeah. And, but it's just, you know, you have to, you know, so it's like, I, you know, I've had somebody asked, you know, who has been like an inspiration to me and I couldn't really think of any one person, but really it's anybody who has gone through, I, I love reading memoirs my, myself and it, you know, almost nine times out of 10 memoir, memoirs are written because somebody's overcome something, mm-hmm. but um, it's those people that have you know, had something destroyed or taken away from them or whatever it is. Um, but they chose to not stay bitter or angry or stop loving people or whatever. It's no, it's, they, they kept doing whatever it is that caused them to get hurt. Now they, you know, I, I'm not going to be serving on dirty duty again, but I've <laughs> <laughs> been there, done that, got the right. shirt. <laughs> Oh, yeah, I can appreciate that. Yeah, memoirs are about people overcoming. I have right. one, too. So is that's what drove you to or led you to write your book was to well, help people overcome in their own lives as well? Well, that that seems to be the response that I've gotten from it. I've really, you know, had it extremely, I was kind of surprised at the response I've received of the people who have said, you know, how much of an encouragement it's been to them, which I'm like, no, but really, you know, like I had had mentioned I've had people over the years saying you should write a book you should write a book and kind of eh, 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 not really interested don't have time for that and well then when um the whole trial thing happened I was like okay fine I'll write a book <laughs> so <laughs> that's um you know and part of it was you know I think telling our stories is important mm-hmm. so many it, it can be a scary thing to do because you know it's so personal and oh, you yeah. when you when you put it out there on kind of a public platform, you obviously are going to open yourself up to criticism and, and attack. And when it's your personal story, it's kind of like, can you just be gentle with it, please? You know, this is this is this is me I'm putting out there. But you're going, and so you you kind of have to have a level of of courage to do that. But I think oh, it's yeah. important mm-hmm. because um, we learn from people's yeah. stories. And I think we learn as well from telling our own story, oh, you know, rather than just stuffing it away and trying to just forget about it and move on. Um, no, um, tell it if that's just writing it down. I think you learn from it. Oh, definitely. Definitely. I shared at a writer's conference once and mm-hmm. I spoke on how writing a book will change your life, the writer's life. Cause we know Correct. that reading books changes our life, but writing one, changes the writer's life. People don't really realize that. It's a big undertaking to write a book. So, so it, yeah, it it is. It's a lot of work and people have some sort of misconception or perception that if you've written a book, you're somehow like making all kinds of money. And I'm (laughs) I'm spending a lot of money, 
um, I know I'm doing that, but I'm like, no, um, there's literally millions of books published every month and I can guarantee you most of them are paying to have other books published. But any, anyway, like I said, I was a little bit, I didn't like really my purpose was not to encourage people. I, it was simply to tell my story, mm-hmm. but then when, and I was very intentional when writing it, like I didn't want, I use no names in the book. There's no names. Um, and I was very intentional. Like I didn't set out to try to villainize anybody in particular. I, that wasn't my goal. And I really, um, you know, I say broken justice system, but I tried to leave it a little bit open-ended it, to, you know, maybe, maybe you come across as I really was the problem in the system. You know, I, that is, I leave that open. I don't, um, it was simply to tell my stories, but I was then surprised that by me telling my story, that the feedback I was getting that it was that it encouraged people. And, and I was kind of, and I didn't realize that, you know, because my story is kind of unique, but they were able to, you know, they were like, you know what, I've been going through some really hard stuff in my marriage or some really hard stuff with my kids or some really hard stuff health-wise or business-wise or whatever. And reading your story of just rising each day was encouraging to me. Yeah. Um, Dealing with the frustration, the being villainized, mm -hmm. there's certain commonalities of emotions and behaviors mm-hmm. that we share. So they right. you shared that you may have gone through it differently with your circumstances than they're going through with their circumstances, but we're all human. Right. We, the, the we share so many there. commonalities. Yeah. The emotions are the same. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I would never, um, you know, I, I'd, I've had numerous people reach out, you know, find me on Facebook or whatever. And I, I've had like three in particular, like literally start off their, their, uh, dialogue with me. Um, my, what I'm going through isn't anything compared to what you've gone through. And I'm like, hold up, stop, stop right there. Stop comparing. Um, Yeah. I'm like, what you're going through, you are having to bear the weight of a hundred percent, um, on you. You know what I mean? what I went through does not diminish at all what you are feeling and going through. Amen. Trauma is personal. Absolutely. So I said, don't, don't try to diminish what you're going through, you know? So, um, you know, you know, that being said, you know, you look, (laughs) you look back at, I think as we get, get older though, we, we tend to, you know, as we go through more and more trials, um, at least me personally, things that, were hard for me at one time. I'm able to kind of breeze through now because it's like, eh, I've been through worse, you know, but I would never, ever. Well, that's resilience that you have built up Uh through your healing. It's like going to the gym. First time you go like, oh, I got sore muscles. But if you keep going (laughs) and build yourself stronger, that's one of the things that I do in my workshops is building resilience. If we build resilience, (laughs) we don't just get it by going through stuff. We have to work on the healing and to build the resilience, which you have done. Yeah. Yeah. Get through it somehow, some way. (laughs) Well, before we tie this up, is there anything you want to make sure our listeners know? You know, I think we've kind of covered everything. I've been able to, you know, share things that have helped me. Um, So I think we've, we've covered everything. And I guess, um, you know, what I will mention is one thing that shocks a lot of people. And I do have it at the uh, very end 
end of my book of, uh, you know, what kind of got me in trouble in the whole, ultimately in the whole uh, trial and repeatedly in some of the stories in the book, it's just my uh, always being drawn to the, the hard to love, the uh, individuals that uh, don't have voices. So anyway, long story short, uh, I've actually developed a friendship with the defendant now. Um, so, uh, you know, they're like, what, you know, you've got to murder as a friend. I was like, yeah, yeah, I do. <laughs> and she has her own story. <laughs> wow. So and, how can uh, people connect with you and where can they get your book? Well, the book is on Amazon. I think it's in other places, but that's the easiest, uh, place to go. Um, juror number 11, that's hashtag 11. Um, should come up then, but the subtitle is a memoir of a broken justice system and rising from the trials of life. Um, it is in right now I've got the Kindle. Well, and I don't know when this will, will publish, but, um, it is on ebook, paperback, hardback. And then I also did an audio book. Some of your podcast listeners might be audiobook listeners. And um, so it is out there on that, you know, full disclaimer there. I narrated it myself and I am absolutely not a professional. Um, it was a huge learning curve to figure out all the, the audio requirements and getting it to where, you know, audible could, uh, accept it and that kind of thing. Um, so, but I, it was important to me since it was my story to tell it in my voice. Um, so it is, it is available there. I really, I don't have a website or anything, but people have been able to find me on Facebook. Um, Katrina Robertson, there's not a whole lot of us out there. If you put Arkansas behind it, you'll, you'll, you'll probably find me. <laughs> well, I'll put the link in the show notes as well. And you're on Instagram too, right? I am. I am. I don't frequent it quite as often, but okay. uh, well, I say I don't frequent it. I don't post as often, but I'm, I, I kind of lurk around a little bit. <laughs> Alrighty. Well, thank you for sharing your story with us today and yeah, encouraging absolutely. us that we can rise from the ashes. Yes. Yes, you can. Uh, thank you, listeners, for being with us today. Until next time, I love you. Thank you so much for listening to the Victorious Souls Podcast. You matter and you are loved. We'd love to connect with you further. So please visit us at daniellebernock.com and grab a copy of Danielle's free audiobook. And remember, only you can change your life. No one can do it for you.